turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. There is a misprint in your bulletin, our text this morning, our verses 17 through 20. We'll be reading 17 through 21, and then verse 4 and verse 1. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 17. This is the inerrant Word of God given to us for all life and godliness. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for privilege to open your enduring word, and we would ask this morning that you would write on the tablets of our hearts by the work of your Spirit all that you would have for us this morning. You know each of our souls so intimately, so personally, in all of the detail, and you know our need. Father, we would grant or ask that you would grant to us that we would not leave here today from this campus the same way we came, that you would be much at work in us. Prepare us even as we study your word this morning to drink and to eat deeply from your table. You have set this table. You are the host at this table. It is your provision It is your gift that we receive. Lord, be among us mightily, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The following account of the great southern general Robert E. Lee is is said to be true. Upon hearing General Lee speak in the highest terms to the Confederate president, Jefferson Davis, about a certain officer, another officer greatly astonished said to Lee, General, do you not know that the man whom you have spoken so highly to, of to the president, is one of your bitterest enemies and misses no opportunity to malign you? Yes, replied General Lee, but the president asked my opinion of him. He did not ask for his opinion of me. I hope you understand the difference there. 
Though this officer was a bitter foe of Lee's, Lee was able to find something good to say about him in the work that he had done as a military officer. Now, such an approach of honor and deference, while always appropriate as we deal with people, does not mean that we avoid the truth when it comes to enemies of the cross and enemies of Christ. Paul takes us to the heart of the matter in our text, having challenged the readers in verse 17 in our text to follow godly examples that had been set before them. He now carefully warns these Philippians to steer clear of those who were the enemies of the gospel. Verse 18 contains a startling phrase. Look at it with me. Many walk as enemies of the cross. What a powerful irony that the cross, the only hope for individuals and nations alike, becomes to them the most feared enemy because it calls for their death to themselves and for their heart's singular allegiance to Jesus. Well, here the cross is shown to be the great watershed, the spiritual watershed of all of culture and history. Now, a watershed is a land formation. We have one in our great Rocky Mountains to the west of us. To the west of the Rocky Mountains, you find the worst desert portions of the United States. To the east, you find some of the richest agricultural land on the face of the earth. And in part, it's because of that watershed. Water comes down one side and water refuses to go to the other side. The cross is the great divide in every culture. The cross reveals two kingdoms. The kingdom of myself versus the kingdom of God. Let me give it to you in several metaphors. The hinge on which history swings is the cross. The fulcrum on which the balance of history moves is the cross. The language by which the story of history can be read is the cross. Now, I want you to notice that Paul's contrast in our past passage is stark. He gives us the difference between the enemies of the cross and the friends of the cross. And that's the contrast that I want us to focus on this morning. It's just a twofold outline for us this morning. Here is the first. With trembling hearts, you and I must learn how to identify the enemies of the cross and therefore the enemies of Christ and the enemies of the church. Let's learn to identify the enemies of the cross. The first thing that I want you to notice are two observations in verse 18. We read that many walk as enemies of Christ. Now, our verb to walk here in our translation is the common word throughout the New Testament used, often described and transliterated as to live. In other words, they walk, they live their lives as a protest against the cross. The daily course of their life 
is a constant protest against the cross, whether they acknowledge it or not. I want you also to observe in the second place that Paul says that many live as enemies of the cross. I would venture a sanctified guess that many of us here this morning, with our present culture being what it is, whether be it political or social issues, that there are times when you wrestle in your own Christian spirit with the state of our culture and of our country. No doubt many of us have felt this way. The cross is not popular. It never ever has been. The living of a life under the yoke of the cross is not a lifestyle choice that the human heart makes on its own. It was normative in the days of Paul, as it is normative for us, that multitudes live as enemies of the cross of Christ. In a strange way, that ought to be a great encouragement to us. That what is happening around us has happened in every age of the church, barring none. Dear ones, this is not an unusual season in the history of the church. It is, in many respects, by far not even nearly the worst season in the history of the church. Well, Paul, in verse 19 and following, through the Holy Spirit, identifies four marks of those who are enemies of the cross. And I want us to look at each of them in turn. First, in verse 19, we read with great sobriety that their end is destruction. With respect to eternity, they have no hope. Nothing but the assurance of their soul's destruction at the hand of God's wrath. Their end is the deeply sobering fact that they will forever live separated from the mercies of God, the favor of God. They will live in torment and punishment unending. Paul is explicitly clear. Their end is destruction. And how deeply sobering this is for us. How can we not grieve for those for whom this is true? Notice that Paul says in verse 18 that he writes with tears with regard to these. With grief over their condition. In the apostle, as there ought to be with us, there is always a sincere union of the truth with a passionate and a genuine love. Paul was always a champion and a guardian of the truth, yet he was never a cold and mocking and harsh defender of the gospel. Instead, he grieved and he prayed over those whose end was destruction and how it ought to be so for us. If you and I are living with a proper brokenness over our own sinfulness brought on by the awakening mercies of the cross, then we too will not be harsh nor hurtful to others in their unbelief. Instead, we will grieve and we will pray and we will wrestle with them with the truth, boldly and clearly, but often with a tear on our cheek, even as we do so. Their end is their destruction. 
Second notice in verse 19, we discover that they remain worshipers of themselves and of their desires. Paul says their God is their belly. When Paul uses the translation stomach or belly here, he is using a figure of speech. Their life's pursuit is personal pleasure, personal satisfaction, with personal choices and desires dictating all that they do. Their devotion is to self-indulgence. And when our desires, dear ones, are no longer subject to God's moral truth, but have become the ruling and driving force of our life, we have begun to side with the enemies of the cross. Paul's warning is for us to refuse to pander to our own soul's needs above the pleasures of God. I want you to hear that. Paul's desire is that we do not pander to our own sense of our soul's needs above the pleasures of God. The satisfaction of our own personal desires is not the reason that we exist. And yet so often we live that way, isn't it? Notice in the third place that the enemies of the cross take joy in things in which they ought to be ashamed. Their glory is in their shame, Paul says. They promote the shameful. The very delight of their lives are things that throughout much of history, when there was a Judeo-Christian root to our culture, much that they celebrate, they ought to be ashamed of. Their lives reflect a passion to reverse God's eternal creation standards woven into the fabric of life. And so all around us, we see the redefinition of marriage. We see the redefinition of gender identity. We see the redefinition of the family. And those are key examples of this desire to change all of culture according to our own norms. Notice in the last place, the fourth mark, the enemies of the cross are such people who only have eyes for what can be seen. They are earthbound and they are this world focused. Paul says their mind is on earthly things. The only horizon that they care about is the horizon of this life. Something has occurred just in the last few months of my life that I never expected. When my father passed away, he was an avid reader of the Wall Street Journal. And I would read the online version often, but I now receive it at, at my house, thanks to my father. And on, once a week, there is a major section in the back of the Wall Street Journal that is essentially filled with nothing more than all of the most beautiful and expensive properties, houses in all of our country, and indeed, other places in the world as well. It's an amazing thing to read through these articles and to read through the celebration of the people who will purchase a home that was valued in the tens of millions of dollars only to tear it down and rebuild their dream house for $50 million. It's 
It's quite amazing. It's quite stunning. Now, I don't know the heart of all those that are doing so, but I do know that many of those who are doing so have nothing more than the horizon that can never look up nor beyond these eyes to the things that are seen only by faith. The enemies of the cross, the enemies of Christ, the enemies of the church cultivate a life of the visible, the tangible, the spendable, the bankable, and the earthbound. Paul has given us the Holy Spirit's criteria for worldliness and for unbelief, which masks itself under a veneer of religion. And so God in his mercy has set up for us through Paul this stark contrast between godliness and ungodliness, between faith and unbelief, between the pursuit of Christ and his cross and the pursuit of the desires of our own fallen hearts. Now, why, you might ask, does Paul elaborate so clearly on the enemies of the cross? Because the contrast is a clear warning to us in the church. You might think that the enemy of the cross is some heinous man or woman who is easily identified, who denies every central tenet of the faith. And they may be that. But don't be fooled. The enemies of the cross also come in the form of some of the nicest people that you will ever meet. Look afresh at how the apostle describes some of these people. They are driven by the sensual appetites of their own body. The person who is driven by personal happiness. The person who is driven by this modern phrase, I am finding my true authentic self. person who calls good evil and evil good because it suits their lifestyle choice. They might be the most polite and nice person that you have ever met, but they are living altogether contrary to the revealed will of God because it's the lifestyle that they have chosen. And if you do not agree with them, they will decry you and us as the church as a hateful bigot. They are dedicated to things, to material values, with no thought, no horizon of a life beyond. And there are many people in the broad definition of the church who fit that kind of description. And this is given to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as a warning. As Christians, if we are worthy of the name, we must go deeper We must not live as enemies of the cross underneath a veneer of faith. And so let me ask you to frisk your soul with several sobering questions. Where might it be said that your heart and my heart are ruled by our pleasures more than ruled by allegiance to Jesus? Ask that question. Is my heart principally ruled by allegiance to Jesus or is it fundamentally day by day ruled 
by the desire to give myself to my pleasures? What do we allow to pass before our eyes? Are there spiritual exercises and spiritual disciplines that are present in our life that are regularly pointing our hearts and our minds to the things of Christ, to the kingdom of Christ, to the cross of Christ? Or do we approach the Christian life like a good salad bar that we only put on our plate the things that we like and the rest of the salad bar we pass by because... We don't consider them tasty enough. Believers, we are called in faith to live by him who is true rather than the shifting sands of our appetites which change from day to day and from year to year and from season of life to season of life. Another question, where might in honest examination you find that you have begun to glory in things shameful. Does the material often take precedence over the spiritual? Are you unable to be generous to the kingdom of God because there is no passion for the kingdom There is no passion for the kingdom because you are focused on striving for the things that your heart wants to possess. But contrast that with a heart that is in a place that wants to be possessed by Christ more and more. Have you placed your career above your spouse, your children, perhaps even above the kingdom of Christ. A third question, if you actually took stock of the use of your time, of your gifts, of your talents, of your material wealth and possessions, would you be able to conclude that there is a heavenly and eternal mindedness that marks your life for all to see? Or might there be an earthly mindedness that based on observable facts is what others see? Dear ones, we are are called by the scalpel-like precision of God's word this morning to a repentance and faith day by day that makes certain that we are the friends of the cross and not the enemies of the cross. The language of Paul at the end of verse 19, what is your mind and what is your heart set upon? Well, in our only other second point this morning, Paul transitions us and leads us to the other side of the contrast. He tells us what is true of the friends of the cross, of the friend of Christ. Look at verse 20 with me, an amazing Verse in all of Scripture. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is in verse 20 one of the most significant and magnificent descriptions 
of who we are in Christ in all of Scripture. Our citizenship, our place, our identity, our home, our protections, they are lodged with Christ in eternity. That is the definition of what it means to be a believer. Paul's appeal is that unlike the enemies of the cross, we live in accord with who we are. People whose life is bound up with a different country. Our citizenship now in this very moment is bound up in heaven. Our life's passport reads that our country is with Almighty God in eternity. Elsewhere in Colossians, Paul writes this. He says, God has delivered us from, that is, we might say from being enemies of the cross, from the power of darkness, and has brought us into the kingdom of his Son, whom he loves. A kingdom is a dominion. It's a country. It's a land. It's a place where the king rules. And the grace of God has changed our country of origin. Now look with me at verse 20 at our English word citizenship. The Greek word underlying our word appears nowhere else in all of the New Testament. That's rather unusual. And so it is a little bit difficult to, to translate with exactly the intent of Paul. Citizenship is a great translation. But here is the most likely allusion of Paul behind this word. It, it alludes to the city constitution of Philippi. You see, Philippi had a registry of its citizens, but that registry was kept in Rome because Philippi was a Roman colony. And so the Philippians, they had to pledge allegiance to Rome, and they could only receive the protections and the benefits of Rome when their citizenship was enrolled in Rome. Well, what Paul seems to be saying then is that these Philippian colonists of heaven on earth must reflect what is true of their homeland. They cannot be enemies of their homeland. They must be friends of the cross. Now, citizenship is under attack in our own country. But here are some of the basic tenets of citizenship. It means that we belong to a land and to a people, to a collective identity. We have rights and protections of that land. We defend her against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And we adopt a language and a heritage and a history of our nation. To be a citizen means that we bear not only the benefits of that citizenship but also the burdens and the costs and the sacrifices that come with it. And so we give our allegiance not to our self-centered appetites as the enemies of the cross do, but we give our allegiance to the king of the land where we live. The treasure of our heart is God and his mercy, not the accumulation of stuff here. Our focus is on the things unseen that only faith can see rather than focus on the things that only the physical eye can see.
Now, if you have ever traveled outside of our beautiful country, overseas, there's a particular experience and joy that I trust that you have had. When you come back to the United States from wherever you have been, you must come through customs. At least it used to be that way. You must come through customs and be identified as an American citizen. You show your passport, which is your ID. You are identified as a citizen of the United States. And then the customs official who is representing your country hands you back your passport and says to you, Welcome home, Mr. Kelberkamp. The first time I experienced that some 45 or 50 years ago, it was a remarkable experience. What did he just say? Welcome home. Brothers and sisters, you are not home yet. You are traveling with a gospel visa in a foreign land. Hold tightly to that gospel passport that you have that identifies you as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The day will come when Jesus Christ will say to you, welcome home but you are not there yet. Live as the friend of Christ, the very one who came in this table to feast us upon himself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in Christ you have lodged our present hope, and our future joys with our citizenship in your kingdom. And Father, we ask that you'll help us to cry out. Lord, enable us to live as friends of Christ, the cross, and the church with a gospel visa in this foreign land. Now, Christ, as we come to your table, as we prepare to drink and to eat of your goodness, give us that the eye of faith should see you high and lifted up, exalted in all of your majesty, but near in your glorified body, that you have escorted us into the very heavenly of heavenlies, the holy of holies. Now feast us, we pray in Jesus' name.